The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. question that I'm assuming every one of us have been asked at some point within our own lives. What answer did, did you have as a child? When you were a kid and someone asks you this question, what do you want to be when you grow up? What was your response? Possibly a fireman or maybe a police officer or a doctor or a veterinarian or a pro athlete or a lawyer. These are common answers to this question whenever I was a child. Uh, although times have certainly changed, this question still remains very common. If you're a parent in this room, uh, you can probably answer that question for your own children because you've heard them answer it so many times. In my household, I have an aerospace engineer that wants to work for NASA and I have a photographer as well. I'll let you guess which one is which. If you know my kids, it's probably pretty obvious which one is which. As our culture has shifted and it's changed, the answers to this age-old question have also shifted and changed. Now, you might hear some different answers. You might hear, I want to be a professional video game streamer. I want to be a social media influencer or an actor. These responses have adapted to what our children value as well as what they are influenced by. As you look at answers to this question with different generations in mind, it gives you an insight into what was popular and what was influential during that time. If you were a young, impressionable kid during the space race of the 1960s, possibly an astronaut or pilot was your dream profession. You wanted to be like Buzz Aldrin, to touch the moon, to fly among the stars. This question is one of the few questions that have truly stood the test of time. What do you want to be when you grow up is a question that will probably never die. It'll probably never disappear. We like to see children dream about the future and about the hope of what could be. Today, as adults, do you still have a dream for your own life? You might consider yourself to be growing up, to be grown up, possibly on the downward slope of being grown a long time ago. Whatever season of life that you are in, what do you dream of becoming? What do you aspire to be? I know that within this room, there are many different generations and many different cultures represented here. The idea of what you want to become will most likely be as vast as the number of people in this room. However, Regardless of your career choice, regardless of your current love or hate for your job, regardless of your current financial situation, regardless of how you 
choose to spend your days, I believe that there's a singular thing that we should all be desiring and all be aspiring towards. And ultimately, that desire and that aspiration is Christ. This is what our desire, this is what our aspiration should be as followers of Christ. This morning, we're going to spend our time in the book of 1 Timothy. We'll spend our time in one singular verse of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. I want you to know that this text has a single meaning. However, it has many applications. In fact, it has an application, I believe, for you this morning. As we look at this text, my hope is that you will evaluate your own life and evaluate your own aspirations. I hope that where you see lack, that you would ask God through the power of his spirit to change you. Where you see growth, I hope that you would praise God for the work that he has already done. In either case, of lack or of growth, rest in your salvation, being secured in the spirit through the work of Christ upon the cross to the Father. This morning, I'm going to ask you to do something different. Will you stand with me as I read our text together, and then I will pray. Again, I'm in 1 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 1. It's a short one. It says this. The saying is trustworthy. If, you want to, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that you would in this moment just illuminate this text. Father, I ask and plead Lord, that your spirit would use this text to shine a light upon our hearts. Father, will you show us the areas where you would have us to look? God, we desire, we aspire, Father, to look more like your son, even in these few moments that we have together. We ask, Lord, that you would honor our prayers and cause change within us. Lord, we ask this not out of selfish ambition or even selfish aspirations. Although we ask this, though, because we know that it is what you desire for us and what you desire of us. God, is it in Christ's name that we pray? Amen. You may have a seat. For the next few Sundays at Stone Oak Bible Church, we're going to walk through this text of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, this text is looking at how the local church... Ours, being an example, is organized. This is how she is governed. The idea of church government might be something you have thought a lot about, or possibly you've thought very little about. Let me say this. God cares about the local church, and he therefore cares about the members of the local church. He cares about the structure of the local church. Just hearing these words, church government might put a bad taste in your mouth. These are two words that could have very different thoughts and emotions tied to them. You think of church, and it might bring you joy and satisfaction. You think of unity. You think of friendships. You think of relationships. When you hear government, you might think of polarization. You might think of a donkey and an elephant. You might think of 2016, 2020, 
or even upcoming 2024. You think of the importance of your local elections. Possibly you think about the separation of church and of state. These words, church government, might be words that are counter to each other even in your own mind. Hooray for church and boo for government. Whatever your thoughts are towards these two words, I ask you, approach our time together this morning and in the coming weeks like this. With our Bibles open. Throughout the Bible, God has a lot to say about the church as well as a lot to say about government. We would ask that God speak to us through his word, that he would speak to us what he has already spoken. God cares about you deeply. God cares that you belong to a local body of believers. God cares about the local church. And God cares about how it operates and functions. This morning, we're going to look at this text in a general sense. Then we will look at it as it relates to our specific congregation. And lastly, we will conclude our time together with how it relates to you as an individual. First, general. Well, let's begin with, this is a short verse. This verse can be broken down into three parts. The first part, transition. This saying is trustworthy. Second part is our aspiration. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer. And finally, the third piece is the desire. He desires a noble task. First, the transition. Can I be honest with you for just a second? Have you ever thought about the question I just asked you? Is everything I said before a lie? I just asked if I could be honest. Does that mean that I was lying on everything that occurred before? Is there a specific honesty that you are giving to us now, which is unlike anything else you've given to us before? Oh, no. We use this phrase in the same way that Paul uses the phrase, this saying is trustworthy. Can I be honest with you for a second? It's a transition. It's a, hey, let me grab your attention. Things are changing. Things are shifting. All eyes up here. This is what Paul is doing. This saying is trustworthy. He's letting the reader know, which includes you and I, that there is a transition happening. Something new is coming. If you look back at 1 Timothy in verse 15, you'll see something very similar. This saying is trustworthy. Beyond the transition of this short saying, though, this saying, just like everything else in the word of God, is trustworthy. We can rely upon it. We can stand upon it as truthful. This statement that the Bible is trustworthy and without error has been challenged at times throughout the history of the church. It's been challenged even within the confines of the local church. In fact, it's not an old historical challenge, but more of a modern challenge. During the late 70s, there was a liberal movement beginning within the church regarding the inerrancy, without error, regarding the inerrancy of the word of God. 
This movement was gaining ground rapidly. In fact, it was gaining ground so quickly that a group of evangelicals decided to gather together to create a statement. They saw what was happening in not only the culture, but within the body of the local church, and it caused them great concern. So much concern that they said, let's gather together to create a single document, a single understanding of what we believe about the word of God. And so they did this. In October of 1978, a group of around 200 evangelicals spent three days together crafting, editing, affirming, and denying the statement of inerrancy. It came to be known as the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. I find that it's still a relevant document for us today. Uh, so relevant that I think it is worth looking at and taking some time to, to see what did they come up with. Uh, the statement on biblical inerrancy is broken into three big parts. It has a preface, which is kind of the historical context of here's who we are gathering together. You then have what we will look at, which is a summation. They have five points that they have created together. And then you have a series of affirmations and denials. Here are the things that we all agree on. And with that, here's all of the things that we are denying, that we disagree on. So let's look at these five summary statements. The curtains are kind of in the way today, so you can follow along with me. I'll read them here. Statement number one says this. God, who is himself truth and speaks truth only... We begin with the person, the character of God, which is where all of our theology must remain, is in the person and the character of God. This God has inspired holy scripture in order thereby to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as creator and Lord, redeemer and judge, Holy Scripture is God's witness to himself. That last line is the great summary of point number one. God is holy and perfect. Summary, Holy Scripture is God's witness to himself. They continue on, point number two. Holy Scripture, each of these build upon themselves, by the way. So point number one establishes God and establishes Holy Scripture. Point number two continues with that same thought. Holy Scripture reemphasizing, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended, looked over by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. It's a beautiful statement. If there's something that you can memorize within this, it's to, be, to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. This is the word of God. Continuing on, point number three, they say this. The Holy Spirit 
Scripture's divine author both authenticates it to us by his inward witness and opens our minds to understand its meaning. It's exactly what I just prayed for after I read the Scripture, that the Spirit of God would illuminate, would take what we see. This is, this is simple. This is black ink on white pages. There's nothing special about this. This is black ink on white pages. What is it that makes this the Holy Scriptures? Well, it's not the printing. I can print this on my own home printer. Their pages might be a little nicer. The cover might be a little nicer. But I can print this at home. What is it that makes this the Holy Scriptures? It's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God taking simple black ink and revealing it, illuminating it to our minds and our hearts. It's the power of the Holy Scripture, point three. Point four, being holy completely and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literacy literary origins under God than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. We can trust everything it says. Whenever it describes a historical event, we can trust that that truly took place and happened. Whenever it describes creation, we can trust that that's how it took place. Whenever it describes our own salvation, we can trust that that is how it has occurred. And last, point five, the authority of Scripture is inescapably, inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own. And such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. If there was ever a statement that has stood the, the, the time from 1978 to 2023, I believe it would be statement number five. If this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded, that's usually not our problem, but the second part is, or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own. This is what we battle continually within our world, is relativism of God's word being only relevant in certain times, certain, certain circumstances. Our text this morning, this statement of 1 Timothy 3, 1, like the rest of the Bible, is trustworthy. We can trust it. We can stand upon it. The truthfulness is complete. Continuing on, it says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This aspiration, the office, is a noble task. Let's now look at what this aspiration actually is. First, Paul gives a qualifier here. He says, if anyone, if anyone, this anyone is right in the middle of two exclusive comments. The first is Paul's previous section, 
concerning women only, which ends chapter 2. Paul was addressing women specifically at the end of chapter 2. The other qualifier is also gender-specific. It can be found at the very end of this verse. Uh, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he, we now have a gender represented, he desires a noble task. We are right between two statements about gender. And Paul here chooses to include an all-inclusive anyone before limiting that anyone. This leads me to believe that the aspiration is for anyone, while the office is reserved only for men. We discuss this very fact at the end of chapter 2, that God has designed teaching and authority within the context of the local church for men. Aspiration does not mean fulfillment. If aspiration meant that we were fulfilling, then I think we'd have a whole world full of professional athletes, doctors, and firemen. I think we all have aspirations that never truly happen. Maybe you aspire to be fit and trim. Your aspiration of that goal alone does not make you fit and trim. Maybe you aspire to get your finances in order and be debt-free. Your aspiration of that goal does not cause your bank account to change. Our aspirations don't change us those around us, or even our circumstances. What is it about aspirations, though, that that does cause something within us to change? What is it about aspirations that they actually do? Well, your aspirations and your dreams, they show what is of value to you. This is one reason that I believe we see answers change when we ask kids what they want to be when they grow up. Values change. What is of value today might not be of value tomorrow. We will orient our lives around the things that matter to us the most. What matters to you? If it isn't abundantly clear, if whenever I ask this question, nothing instantly pops to your mind, you can look in two places. One, your calendar, and two, your bank statements. These are two areas where it becomes relatively easy to see the things that we value. Where do you spend your resources? Your resources of time and your resources of treasure. This is what you value. Do you value your children's athletic abilities? I ask this because I spent Saturday. I actually didn't. My wife spent Saturday. I apparently didn't value. My wife spent Saturday morning sitting at a soccer field watching our daughter play soccer. Why? That's a sacrifice. She values watching our child grow, of learning a team sport together. Do you maybe value your bank account's growth? You'll probably find this is where a good amount of time and of treasure is devoted. Assess yourself. Assess your own heart. Where are my values placed? about this one? Do you value the local church? Do you value the coming together of the local body of believers? We would call this one Stone Oak Bible Church. What evidences show your value in the local church? 
to give you Christ's sacrifice for you upon the cross? What shows your value of this miraculous act? Maybe a better way to ask this question is whether your aspirations match your values. And I believe this text is doing exactly that. It's asking us for our aspirations to be in line with our values. Our single verse this morning is not written in isolation. This text describes this aspiration towards a specific office within the local church. Depending on your text, it might have a different title. Depending on your text, it's either overseer or it's possibly bishop. Depending on your church background, this word most likely has been given a different name. It would refer here to the position of authority within the local church under Christ. In some contexts, it would be proper to call this a bishop, come from that denominational movement, an elder, that's what we choose to call them here, or even a pastor. Language matters. Language matters deeply. Whenever it comes to our theology, whenever it comes to our God, language really matters. Are you ready for some confusion? We are given two offices within Scripture for the local church. We will look at both of them in the coming weeks. These two offices are elders and deacons. However, elders are called many different things within Scripture. We have overseer, we have bishop, we have elder. To add to the confusion, there's the office of deacon and the word deacon. Deacon simply means a servant. That's all that the word deacon means. So whenever we read that they were a deacon, it's another way of saying they are serving. Or it could mean they're in the office of deacon. The same word is used throughout scripture. Deacon is simply a servant. Anytime you're serving someone, you are deaconing. Turn it into a, a verb there. That can insert even more confusion when we are referring to the office of deacon within the local church or we're simply referring to someone following Christ and serving someone else. Some of you might come from a, a denominational uh, bend. This is my upbringing where deacon was what we called our elders. Our deacons were the decision makers. They were not the necessarily servants of the church, but they were the leaders of the church. Even more confusing. Let me attempt to clear up some of this confusion. When you see within your text, overseer or bishop, in our context, think of an elder. Think of the highest authority in the local church under Christ. Well, who aspires to this? Who is given this potential for aspiration? If anyone. And my hope is that everyone aspires to follow Christ and to lead others to Christ. I firmly believe that every Christian is called to lead. I firmly believe that every Christian is called to lead. Not necessarily to lead people, but to lead people to Christ. This is what Christ leaves us with in Matthew chapter 28. It's the Great Commission. I want to be a part of a movement of Christianity where everyone is taking their faith so seriously that they aspire to be an overseer. Again, not everyone is called to, 
or can fulfill this position. However, what would it look like if everyone truly aspired to serve Christ and to serve his body? I want to be a part of that. That excites me. That leaves no room for casual spectators of Christ. That leaves no room for Sunday-only Christians. That leaves no room for non-discipleship Christianity. That leaves no room for whatever other adjectives we decide to toss in front of Christian. That only leaves room for followers of Christ in its truest form. If we continue on from our text, if we look at verses 2 through 7, there's a string of qualifications that follow this verse. These string of qualifications, they help us to define what an overseer is. If you just look through those, those qualifications, it's interesting. The qualifications are, are what I would call rather tame. What I mean by tame is that none of them are extraordinary. None of them say that you have to sell all your possessions. None of them say that you have to go to seminary. None of them say that you have to work full-time in the church. What they do say is that you should be a follower of Christ in all areas of your life. I won't go into detail on these qualifications because we are going to look at them in detail in the coming weeks. However, they do help us to define what an overseer or an elder should be doing. The final section of this short verse is the desire. The text says that its desire is a noble task. What is it about this office that makes it noble? The office of overseer or elder might be the highest authoritative position within the local church under Christ. However, it is not like being the CEO of an organization. Oftentimes, whenever you move up the career ladder, the more removed you get from the bottom of the organization. If you worked in a corporate setting, just think of your own CEO. Think of your own top executive. Do you know them? Do they know you? Do you have access to them? Do you have their personal cell phone number? Are you able to text and to call whenever you would like? Do they serve you? This is what's unique about the calling to the local church offices. When called to these positions, the role is not to distance yourself from people, but instead to serve those people. This comes after our perfect shepherd, Christ. A shepherd should smell like sheep. A shepherd that doesn't smell like sheep is a poor shepherd. Look at what Christ was doing on his final days on this earth. Before his death on the cross, he was washing the feet of his disciples. He was caring for. He was so serving those that he was in authority over. This is the noble task of what it means to be an elder. As we transition from the generalities of this text to the specifics concerning this text, let me first say that I have the privilege of serving with some fantastic elders who are willing to submit themselves in authority to Christ. And in doing so, they, I believe, serve our congregation faithfully. Here at Stone Oak Bible, we are what we call elder-led, 
deacon served, and staff executed. I wish we had a different way to say staff executed. It does not mean we execute our staff. It means that they execute what has been put down uh, for what the elders and deacons have established. If you have a different way of saying staff executed, please let me know later on because I really want to change it besides, it, it looks great, like elder-led, deacon serve, staff executed. It's like, an odd verb to use in there. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the, the two offices of elders and deacons specifically. Uh, but before we get into the, some of the specifics of this verse and how it relates to our congregation specifically, I wanted to discuss how we, as a church, actually operate. So we here at Stone Oak Bible, we have a group of men that lead our church in two primary categories. Those two primary categories are the teaching here of the word and prayer. These are two areas that we see elders are responsible for. This and how we also see deacons, it comes from Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, you have the establishment of deacons. And in that, the establishment of deacons, you have the responsibilities of the elders. The elders were tasked with two things, with teaching and with prayer. And the deacons were tasked with serving, serving of the body. While there is some overlap in these positions, it is from this foundation that we operate. One way that we, as Stone of Bible, choose to think of this is to look at elders as servant leaders. To look at elders as servant leaders, and to look at our deacons as lead servants. So our elders are servant leaders, and our deacons are lead servants. And our elders lead this through their servants' hearts. Also, also worth noting... Um, is that we at Stone Oak Bible Church, we see the title of elder, of overseer, of bishop, and of pastor as synonymous. This means we see these titles interchangeable as well as the same. We consider all of our elders to be pastors and all of our pastors to be elders. If you see anybody listed on our website that has the title of pastor, they're also an elder. If you see anyone with the title of elder, they will also be pastoring. Some of our elders are employed by the church and others are not. We see both examples of this within scripture. Being an, an elder of this local body, it is a joy, but it does come with difficulties. It's hard to be in leadership of a local church. The local church, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, is comprised of people. And I'm not sure if you know this, but people can be difficult. Of course, none of you. None of you. I'm not referring to any of you. But I've heard this from other people in other churches, that their people are very difficult. Can I request something of you? Be in prayer for our elders. I would like to just identify them. Our, our elders are Steve Glazner to my right, who led us this morning in communion. We have Justin Bishop, uh, the most recent new father in our congregation. Uh, we have Luis Acevedo. Um, we have Justin Evans, who is in the midst of a 100-mile bike ride right now. He needs lots of prayer right now. Uh, and myself. Be in prayer for God to work through us as we lead and we serve this local congregation that God has called us to. 
be in prayer for our families, be in prayer for our hearts, for our minds, for our hands. Our desire as elders is to serve God as we serve this local body. We've looked at some generalities and some specifics. Let's end our time here with some applications. Let me go back to my original question. What do you want to be when you grow up? My hope is that no matter what career, what vocation, what location you choose, that you will aspire to serve Christ. We could really use some believers in every vocation. We could really use some Christian doctors. We could really use some Christian lawyers. We could really use some Christian homemakers. Your belief in Christ for your salvation does not only happen during Sunday mornings. You are called a new creation. This should influence every area of your life. Aspire to live out your Christianity in totality. Second, I hope that there are many of you that aspire to look more like Christ in the context of the local church. Your aspirations, again, can show your values. For some, that aspiration might include the office of overseer. For all, that will look like unity and service. This is what Christ continually calls the local church to. How can you serve the local church with your current giftings? How can you serve the local church with your time, with your treasures? And are you currently doing this? If not, why not? Aspire to that task. Third, since aspiration shows our values, evaluate your heart. I've seen it repeated many times that people desire specific positions because of two main reasons. They desire specific positions because of two main reasons. And they're not positives. Selfishness and pride. Selfishness and pride. This is why lots aspire to be the CEO of the organization. Does it come with a pay raise? Absolutely. But more importantly, it might come with a title. We're grasping to be important. We're grasping for people to look at us and to behold the great us. It's selfishness. It's pride. Why do you aspire to look more like Christ? Why is it that I aspire to look like Christ? If it's for any reason other than to glorify and honor God, then I suggest you evaluate your own values. As a parent, as I preach to my own heart, I desire oftentimes for my kids' behavior to be good. Why? Well, that aspiration is my own sin and my own pride. I desire my kids to be good so that I look good as a parent. I desire for my kids to behave so no one judges me as a terrible parent. Please don't say the bad things to anybody outside of my household because I need to look good. My aspiration for my own kids oftentimes 
is centered around my own aspirations for me to look good to people that don't really care. It's my own selfishness. It's my own pride. It's a good thing for my kids to behave. Don't get me wrong. I hope they do behave. But if my aspirations for my kids' behavior is only focused upon me, then I missed it. My aspirations for my kids to behave is so that they can see Christ. So I can protect them from the sin that is around them. If it's for any other reason than for you to glorify and honor God, evaluate your own values. Don't aspire to the office of overseer if you want to be the CEO. This isn't what the position is for. Positions of, of leadership within the church are for those that aspire to make less of themselves and to make much of Christ. Aspire to serve. Aspire to wash feet. Uh, aspire to look more like Christ so you can be Christ to others. I implore you this morning, church, to aspire to this noble task.